Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing 2-0. That is the key man. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Dent, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Boy, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Dent. Hi there, everyone. I'm Bucky Dent. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. We have a great guest on this week. I'm so excited to talk to David Cohn. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled we have him on. A big thanks to, uh, to your agent and David's agent, Andrew Levy, for getting him on uh, with us. I know David's uh, pretty busy these days and, and kind of always sometimes hard to get some time with because he is just so dynamic and all that he does is still in the game. But uh, we're, we're grateful to him and we're grateful to Andrew for, for getting him on and really excited about it. It's really weird because, you know, David Cohn is a guy who I'm desperate to talk to about his career and, and so many of the great stories from really growing up watching the pitch. But right now, doesn't it feel strange to talk about anything other than the 2020 baseball season? Oh, I know. But let's get started with him. I'm looking forward to talk to him and talk to him about his new book, Full Count. So let's get David on. Hey, David, great to have you on, brother, here with Al and John. And uh, I understand that uh, you just come out with a paperback edition of your 2019 book, Full Count. Yeah, Bucky, it's good to be on with you, as always. Yeah, Jack Curry and I uh, collaborated on a book uh, last year, and uh, it did very well. It actually made the New York Times bestseller list the first week out. So, uh, you know, I was really happy, you know, for Jack, you know, who's a longtime writer with the New York Times and you know, be able to crack that list is really saying something. He did a great job with the book. And yeah, this uh, last week, the paperback version came out. So we got a little secondary push going on here, but we're both really proud of it. That's awesome. Now, tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, Andrew didn't send me one, so I didn't get a chance to read it. So, <laughs> but it's- so a, We're going to fix it, that right now. Yeah, it, it's about pitching, right? I mean, it's more technical about pitching and your thoughts about what pitchers should be doing and things like that. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's it's a raw and kind of uh, inside look at, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything that a pitcher goes through, everything I went through, including the, a lot of insecurities, uh, you know, some anxiety on the mound, how to deal with that, what it's like, and, and certainly some of the stories in there, the Yankee stories and Mets stories. So, you know, it covers a lot of ground. But I think the best thing is it's just kind of an honest and real look at things. And, you know, I, I admit a lot of mistakes I made along the way, point them out, and then also some good, good things along the way and some technical stuff for kids at the end of the book. That uh, I know that you, uh, you've done a lot of coaching in your life, Bucky, and still do. And, you know, that, that's the best part is when you can kind of reach, reach the younger generation and maybe tell them something they didn't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you were a bulldog on the mound. You know, I, I, I got to see you pitch a lot. And actually, uh, we were talking earlier, John and Al and I, you pitched against me. I, I can't remember if it was in when I was managing Fort Lauderdale or, or 87 in, when, in Tidewater. But I, I remember going, wow, this guy's going to be pretty doggone good, you know. 
and you went on to have a great career, but you struggled a little bit in, in the minor leagues, you know, with some injuries, you missed a year, but that stuff had to help you be the pitcher you were when you came back though, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, I um, threw a wild pitch in a spring training game over at Pirate City in Bradenton. And uh, this was back in 1983. And I ran to cover home plate, and got my legs tangled up with the base runner coming in from third and blew out my anterior cruciate ligament. So it was my land leg, you know, my right-handed pitcher. So it was my left knee. And uh, that was a tough injury to come back from. You know, they didn't really know how to fix anterior cruciates back in the early 80s as well as they do now. And so I've got a couple of big scars on my knee. It took me a long time to come back from that. And I really had to learn how to land again almost. You know, I had to change my whole motion in order to throw strikes. I had a real hard time, you know, with my control after that throwing strikes because, you, you know, Bucky, I mean, for pitchers, how you land – you know, right. it's so important for a pitcher because you have so much force going towards home plate that once you brace yourself with that with your lead leg and plant it and drive through it, well, you've got to have some, some stability in that leg or else uh, your release point's going to jump around. And my my release point jumped around for a couple of years after that. It took me a while to kind of get it all back together. Well, I, I read something where you you kind of took Tion. You took a little bit from uh, Louis Tion. And I remember you, you know, dropping down and, you know, you had a little bit of a, a hesitation sometimes. So you took a little bit from, from a, a guy that I played with. Yeah, I love Louis Tian. I mean, you know, he was, he was my sweet spot as a young teenager. You know, uh, the 1975 World Series, to me, that was right when I was uh, in, in my peak as a young fan, you know, really into the game. You know, I watched all those 70s Yankees great teams that you were a part of, certainly the Red Sox in 75. The Royals in the 70s was a big influence on my life. Uh, you know, going to high school in the, in the 1970s, boy, that was just just uh, so, so important to me to watch that go on and, and to learn from, from those guys. So, yeah, I mean, I really looked up to Louis Tian. Uh, and, you know, when I got to the Mets, Bucky, they encouraged me to kind of change my style. I, I always liked to drop down, uh -huh. but the Royals were kind of a conservative organization back then, and they wanted me to stay with one release point, and they – they sort of frowned on me trying different styles and dropping down sidearm. And I think that's one of the reasons why they kind of gave up on me and traded me to the Mets. And the minute I got to the Mets, Mel Stoudemire loved it. I dropped down and threw a sidearm slider to Jack Clark one day in my first Mets game and struck him out. And with the Mets bench just lit up and they encouraged me to be me, <laughs> you know, I know you probably know what that feels like, but you know, when you're around, a, you're around a new team after you've been traded and they really encourage you, just to be you, that they like what they see. Boy, that was a huge, huge, huge uh, uh, thing in my career that really helped me, you know, going to the Mets and being embraced right there. Yeah, Louis Tion, I remember uh, talking to him. He, he used to locker next to me, and, and I'll tell you what, he's one of the funniest guys I've, I've ever been around in baseball. But he told me, you know, I said, when did you start to drop down? And he says, I did it one time during a game. I just, you know, had to strike a guy out um, – who came, who'd seen me like three or four times. And he says, I just, out of the blue, I just dropped down and threw a curveball right down the middle of the plate. And he said, after that, I just kind of, kind of, you know, de developed it and, uh, and it became part of my, my pitching style, but he's one of the, one of the great guys, but why don't you think guys today do a little bit more of that stuff? I think it's going to come back around full circle again. You know, you know, Bucky, there's so much emphasis on power. Nowadays, you know, all the kids nowadays, they're training for high velocity, they're throwing weighted balls, there's, there's different training uh, 
methods now to really maximize effort and velocity. And, and you know, the sidearm, the, the dropping down the pitches, the sidearm sliders that Louis Tion threw that I copied, you know, that's more in the finesse game, right? That's more of, uh, you know, the, the craftsmanship and when you learn how to pitch. And, you know, pitchers uh, in Louis's era, as you know, in the 70s, those guys, uh, they threw 140 or 150 pitches a start. Right. So they, they had to be more uh, crafty at times when they got a little fatigued at the end of games or when they saw a lineup turn over three and four times, maybe even five times in a, in a particular game. You know, you had to come up with different looks. And nowadays it's almost as if these guys are trained maximum power, maximum effort, and then we'll get another reliever in after you. Just give us five innings. Just give us 100 pitches. So it's a different mindset for, for these kids nowadays. Well, David, I mean, you you know it's, it's, it's not just kind of how these guys are trained. It actually is how they're trained. And I'm curious what you think. You know, there's a reason for this right now, and that is because the way to attract attention when you're on the amateur circuit is to fire crazy radar gun readings. What do you think can change down at those amateur levels, which are getting less and less amateur, obviously, if you look at them, yes. but th- things like this, what can cha- how can you change down there at the discovery point in order to bring some of that finesse in, would you say? Well, I don't know what can be done, to tell you the truth. It's a great point. If, if you're trying to embark on a professional career, you've got to get a scout to like you at some point when you're in your teens. And uh, when you're a teenager, and the, the way to do that is to have high velocity, to have arm speed. So it's almost as if the finesse game is going to be uh, for pitchers that are being recycled, you know, uh, guys that have long minor league careers or that are on the downside of their career. They, that's when they're more prone to, to, to be able to learn tricks and to learn finesse and we still see it here and there. I mean, Kyle Hendricks with the Cubs is what I would consider more of a finesse pitcher who relies on movement and changing speeds and setting up hitters more than just trying to overpower them. I think it'll come full circle again to where, you know, if everybody's throwing hard, the hitters adjust. And Bucky knows this better than anybody. If, if, if you get used to seeing 95-mile-an-hour fastballs uh, day in and day out from every pitcher with the same kind of mechanics, you're going to adjust. You're going to get used to it. So – Something different is going to be effective at some point. A Louis Tion style is going to come back into, into place at some point and be very effective because hitters aren't going to be used to seeing that. Well, as we get close to opening day, I know you started out in spring training, you know, watching these guys closely and stuff like that. If I said the Yankees haven't won in 10 years and now we're going to start, you know, an, another decade and we got a guy like Garrett Cole. Is he the guy that's going to get us over the hump to to win a world championship? You've been around him. You've interviewed him. He seems to be like a, he's an intense bulldog-type pitcher. Uh, what's your thoughts on him? Yes, he, he just uh, he checks all the boxes, Bucky. He really does. I mean, when you look for a young pitcher like him, you want somebody who's accountable, and he very much is. You want somebody who's highly motivated. He really is. He's supremely talented, uh, maybe the best fastball uh, that we've seen uh, in the game today. The life on his fastball is tremendous. But here's a guy who asked all the right questions, Bucky. He would come up to you and ask you questions. He has proper uh, deference to the veterans. He wants to learn. He's, he is uh, always curious about how you did something. And even though he's kind of a new school guy with the new techniques and uh, the training methods that he uses now with high-speed cameras and all the data, you know, the first thing he asked me, Bucky, was about adjustments. It was about Louis Tion, about throwing sidearm, about how to do that. And, you know, he, he just is one of those guys that just will never be satisfied and will always be growing and trying to learn. And, and to me, that's the key. Somebody who wanted to come to New York, 
somebody who's really talented and somebody who's not satisfied and wants to continue to get better. You know, it's strange to talk about things like spring training back in Tampa because it was so long ago, obviously. But it, it was just so jarring to me to watch this, you know, huge big name free agent show up there. And, I, you know, our, our media relations team, they were grateful for him, but they were also kind of laughing. It was like hard to get him to stop talking sometimes. You know, a lot of these guys, they, they, they sign that big deal and it's like, OK, you know, they'll retreat to the you know lounge and never be seen again. He would he would just sit by his locker the entire time chatting with any reporter who would come up, not just interviews, just literally small talk, picking brains or you would see him with other pitchers. Like, he was just there present the entire time. And it was just a, a little funny because you don't see that a lot with the uh, big Yankees players. Yeah, it's a great point, and it's something we used to do a lot more of in terms of uh, we, we'd call it uh, talking on background or off the record, if you will. I mean, you get to know the beat writers that way. I mean, the, the beat writers, they, they travel the same way you do. They're on the, they just stay in cheaper hotels. They don't make as much money or near, nearly anywhere near the money the players make, but they're really living the same life, and they're traveling on the road with you in the same cities, and you get a chance to talk. You know, I've had some of the best conversations with reporters off the record over the years that I learned a lot from. You know, it's something that's kind of been frowned on nowadays as most organizations try to control the message from a PR standpoint and really uh, limit the access to the players uh, nowadays. And, and that's, that's kind of a shame. It's nice to see a throwback like that. You know, Garrett Cole, as you described, is somebody who wants to learn from everybody. And, it, you know, if there was more of a hey, we can talk off the record and make sure that, you know, you don't quote me unless you let me know you're going to quote me. There was a little more trust. I think maybe we can get back to that kind of relationship between players and writers once again. 60-game season, what's what's going to be the key for the Yankees this year? I mean, uh, uh, we know that they ain't going to have time to make any mistakes, so this is going to be a sprint getting out of the gate. Yeah, you know, I, you know I, I keep emphasizing the superstars that the Yankees have. And you, when you look at the middle of their lineup, you think about Aaron Judge and Stanton, you know, Giancarlo Stanton, and if they stay healthy, how many of the 60 games do those two play together in the same lineup? What kind of production, power production do they put up? I still think that's a big story for them is the overall health, even though last year we saw it was the next man up strategy and the Yankees just kept pulling people out of the minor leagues out of nowhere. They kept contributing and the next man up really worked for them last year. But in a 60-game sprint, you need your stars to be stars. You need Garrett Cole to step up and lead, and you need Giancarlo Stanton to be Giancarlo Stanton, and you need Aaron Judge to stay healthy. And if those two guys can stick it together, you know, in, in, in the same lineup, I wonder how many of those 60 games they homer together in and, and how many games they can impact with their power. I think that's a big deal for the Yankees this year. Do you think that you think the energy from the crowd's gonna gonna affect these guys? So I saw where they're talking about trying to pipe some energy in, but I mean, you played in those B games on those backfields and stuff like that where there was no crowd, and then boy, you got to motivate yourself to get up to play in those things. So I'm I'm just wondering, you know, being around them, you know, with the stadium being empty now, is there any concern about that? Yes, there's concern about that. I mean, there's nothing to compare it to, you know, other than, like you said, maybe a spring training B game on a backfield somewhere. And that's usually just to get your work in. Uh, these games count. You know, you play for real. And, uh, you know, it's uh, these, these players are not used to that. It's going to be what, one thing after another for adjustments for these guys. I really admire the courage that you've got to not only deal with a pandemic, 
and all the protocols they got to go through on a daily basis just to just to stay in you know in the in the team uh, fabric so to speak very very difficult there's so many distractions out there for these guys nowadays and i really uh, i really envy them for for making this effort uh, yeah, really pulling for them cuz you know uh, we all would love to see live baseball as long as it's safe and you know it can be done right but wow what a challenge for these players bucky you're right no fans getting tested every day, the worry about your family, all the off-the-field stuff, really, really high degree of difficulty for, for this schedule for these players. David, you talked about coming into your peak as a fan, you know, in the, in the 70s. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit younger. For me, those peak years as a fan were 98, 99, of course, years that as a Yankees fan, it, it could not have been more fun to watch them play every single day. And, and you were a huge part of that winning 20 games in 1998 and, of course, pitching the perfect game in, in 99 and winning all those championships. I see some similarities, you know, when we did this podcast episode with David Wells and all the interviews I've done with you guys through the years about that decade and about that dynasty. I see some similarities to this team and to the team last year and that it, it seems like a very loose group and a group that really gets along well and has a lot of fun together. And, uh, you know, it's fun to, to have you or David Wells reminisce about all the fun you guys had together back then, although some of it I know we can't talk about on this podcast. Um, but tell me about the similarities you might see between kind of this era and this group and groups that you were part of. It is a, it is a great point. And uh, I do see a lot of similarities and mainly because in the 90s, you know, they talk about the core four. Is really, you know, the, the fantastic five in my mind when you throw Bernie Williams in with Jeter and Posada and Mariano Rivera and Pettit. You know, you had that nucleus of players that came up through the minor leagues together. They all developed together. They developed a genuine friendship together. And now you can bring in a free agent. You know, in the 90s, it was, it was signing a pitcher like me or trading for a pitcher like me, a veteran pitcher to come in and kind of you know, uh, complete the pitcher that was already in place. And that's what Garrett Cole is now to me for the Yankees. He's that, that piece of the puzzle. Now that you have that nucleus of judge and Sanchez and Glaber and, you know, the list goes on and on down, down the line. Uh, it's time for somebody like Garrett Cole to come in and be that missing piece. Uh, so yeah, I can, you can kind of see the makings of, of, of what's happening now and compare it back to how, how the nineties were built uh, by Gene Michael and, Several others. Buck Showalter was a big part of that process back in the early 90s. Uh, uh, Stick Michael, a big part of it. Um, Bob Watson, the late Bob Watson, a big part of that as well. So, yeah, yeah, you can kind of see it. You can see it coming. And uh, Gary Cole might be that guy to kind of help the rest of them uh, get over the hump. <laughs> Talking to Pettit, I mean, he, he, he talked about some good stories. And so, and so did David Wells, you know, about, you know, the day he, uh, he pitched his perfect game and uh, – he went out there and he, he was like he stayed out all night and stuff like that. You you two got you two guys had a great friendship along with Don Larson. I remember being at your wonderful event a couple years ago when I think Don Larson was the last time he spoke in public and he was phenomenal. But you three guys seemed to have a good bond together. Yeah, we really did. I mean, uh, David Wells and Don Larson went went to the same high school, you know, in Point Loma in San Diego. I mean, what are the odds of that? Oh wow. Um, you know, David Wells and I became very close, you know, even though at first it was a little rocky because, uh, you know, we actually, we got in a fight in the clubhouse. Uh, you know, <laughs> Boomer, uh, I know you've seen this a lot, Bucky, in the oh, clubhouses, yeah. you know, tempers, tempers flare and things happen that you, you maybe never hear about. But 
But, you know, Boomer, David Wells got thrown out of the game in the first inning, arguing strikes and balls with the umpire. And our bullpen was really short, and we ended up losing that game and, you know, stretching out our bullpen. And, and he and I got in a big argument over that in the clubhouse and ended up throwing blows at each other a little bit. And then after that, we got separated and went out that night and kind of cleared the air and had a couple beers together. And from that point on, we really became pretty close. You know, he kind of needed a friend. And it, it turns out that, uh, you know, I, I really learned a lot uh, about David Wells and what made him tick. And, you know, Bucky, about 10 days after that fight and that, that, that friendship that we had, he threw a perfect game in 1998. And from that point on, he took off. His career really changed from that point on. And he was a different pitcher the rest of his career. He was a frontline starter and a big part of what we did in 98 and 99. And, you know, we even, Bucky, at times, we stayed at a different hotel. I, w- I told Joe Torrey, let me have David Wells, and we would get a different room. We'd stay away from the team hotel so David could have some fun. We could hide a little bit, stay out of trouble. And we had the best summer in 98 doing that the whole summer. And uh, he, he was 18-4 and four that year, his, his one loss record. It seemed like every game he pitched, he was in the eighth or ninth inning, and, and we were winning the game. And uh, at the end of the year, you know, we had 125 wins and 50 losses. I think David told me every story about you guys that summer, and he left that story out about you guys getting into a fight. But I have a, new, a newfound respect for you because he's a pretty big guy. Yes, he is. <laughs> he is a big guy. I, yeah, I was definitely the underdog in that one. How, how much fun did you guys have at, that night after his perfect game? Uh, what, what was that like, just kind of the relief that he added of all that tension going through nine innings? What, what do you remember from celebrating that with him? I just remember um, from a historical standpoint, when you go through something like that, you experience something like that at Yankee Stadium, well, you just, you just you realize how big the history is. Uh, you know, you think back all the way to the Babe Ruth era, and you, you know, that he played on that field, and that you just, you know, you're a part of something that happened on that same field and, and that you'll forever be remembered for. And I know, you know, David Wells has always been kind of a baseball historian. You know, he's a big collector of memorabilia. He's got more stuff than I think I've seen any ex-player I've ever been around in terms of understanding the history of the game. He's a fan of the history. He buys a lot of stuff. Uh, he's got Babe Bruce original cashmere coat that he wore on his last day at Yankee Stadium when he gave his speech. It's, it's just just remarkable that you know what he does, and uh, so I knew what that day meant to him. You know, I knew historically that he would forever be remembered in history as a Yankee for that particular day, that one special day. And uh, even all these years later, over twenty years later, we're still we're still talking about it. Yeah, you had that special day too, and. Uh... Talk a little bit about uh, your special day, that, that perfect game. You, you actually threw the ball uh, op- uh, to Yogi opening pitch, right? Yeah, Don Larson did. I gave oh, Don Larson right. the Larson. ball, and he threw it to Yogi, who was using Joe Girardi's glove to catch it. And uh, about that? that that just tied it all together. You know, uh, being, being such good friends with David Wells and being part of his perfect game the year before and knowing having met Don Larson and then realizing, you know, on Yogi Berra Day that I had a chance to do something like that, it's just incredible. I still can't believe it, Bucky. At the end of the day, I had 88 pitches, and there was a big number eight behind home plate for Yogi Berra. So How about that? That's unbelievable. I'd- go figure whether you believe in the baseball gods or not. You know, it makes you wonder. <laughs> I didn't know that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, but t- talk, talk a little bit about that day. I mean, you know, when did you know that you had a chance of, to, to have a perfect game? What inning? You know, when you get through five, the crowd starts to pick up a little bit, and that's the beauty of New York and Yankee fans uh, is that they anticipate the flow of the game. 
So they, they know, they let you know, you know, every out, they start to cheer a little louder in the sixth and the seventh inning. And, you know, by that point, you're, 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 you're kind of counting outs, you know, when you get through six, just three more innings, nine more outs, you get through seven, whoa, now, now it's getting serious, through seven innings. And then the eighth inning, you know, I think there was a Chuck Knobloch made a great play uh, on a hard ground ball that was a base hit up the middle. And he made a great backhand, and that's when Chuck had his throwing problems, had a little bit of the yips, and he turned around and fired a bullet to Tino, red chest high, perfect throw to get me out of that jam in the eighth. And then, uh, of course, I'll never forget walking out for the ninth inning. I could feel my hair growing, the adrenaline rush that you get when, you, when you're the pitcher and you've got three outs to go for a perfect game and then you throw in, it's at Yankee Stadium on Yogi Berra Day. And I'm 36 years old. It's the last chance I'm ever going to have to do something like this. Well, you can just imagine the adrenaline rush that you get. And I, I'll never forget the feeling. I love the fact that you described being in a jam in a perfect game, by the way. I think that's pretty unique. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 2 count to Jose Vito. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing, though, that I'm really curious about. You know, David, you, you you were such a clubhouse guy in a lot of ways. I mean, it was you always seemed, you know, looking back at your career, that you got as much enjoyment off the field as you did on the field, just being around the guys. How hard do you think that's going to be this year? This idea of, you know, we're here to play a game, but we're not allowed to really interact. If we have an issue during the game, we can't go out and get beers afterward and talk about it this yeah. year. You know, how hard is that for a team pursuing under very difficult conditions, what the Yankees are trying to pursue this year. Yeah, this this is just anything but normal. You're right. I mean, this this feels like this 60-game schedule feels more like a mission, right? A rescue mission. Right. Like get out there and just get the game back. You know, we we all have to we all have to do whatever what we have to do now, but it's nothing even close to normal. That's gonna be really difficult for the players. Uh, even though when you when you compare you compare baseball to the other sports, they will be traveling together. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's going to be an interesting part of how they handle that and, and traveling up and down the East Coast, even though they'll stay on the East Coast time zone. They won't be jumping around time zones. But you're going to have to travel down to Miami to, to play the Marlins or to Tampa to play the Rays or to Washington or Philly to play the Nats and the Phils. Uh, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how that, that, that shakes out. There will be some opportunity for players to have a little bit of that old school camaraderie on, on these, these trips. but. At the same time, when you're wearing masks and, you know, you're trying to social distance and you're trying to keep your conversation somewhat limited because that's what you're told to do. Don't talk too much, don't, especially when you're on an airplane. It's still going to be really difficult for these players to, to have any sense of normalcy at all. I'm really curious how it goes between pitchers and catchers, especially, especially if there are any like roster moves made during the season. You know, I mean, there's such a big part of that relationship that's just understanding each other and knowing and, and that doesn't come by just looking at a couple of sheets of paper and understanding their routines. No. Yeah. There's, there's going to be some hiccups along the way. Uh, there's going to be players that get hurt. There's going to be the unforeseen situations that arise. If players test positive during the regular season, you know, what protocols are in place, how it's handled. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety. And I really, you know, as I said before, I really admire these players, the players that are, that, that, that have opted in, you know, are, are doing this, uh, you know, uh, almost uh, as a mission, as I said before, we, we have to get the game back. We have to get back out there. We have to do the best we can with what we have right now. Well, what about you guys as announcers? I mean, how difficult is it going to be for you guys? Really difficult, Bucky. I mean, we, we still don't know exactly where we're going to be. I know as of now, 
the home games at Yankee Stadium that Michael Kay and I will will be at the stadium and be able to use the booths and social distance and, and be able to call the games from the Yankee Stadium. But when the Yankees are on the road, we're not going to travel with the team. So we're going to have to call the game from a remote location, either Yankee Stadium or in Stanford, Connecticut at, at the studio there. We, we're still not sure on the road games what happens, uh, even at this late date. That, that is amazing. But, hey, let, let me ask you a question. You know, it came out this week, you know, where some of the pitchers were talking about this 10-inning rule. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, uh, I, I don't like that. I mean, we're, we're playing baseball. I know they're trying to hurry the games up and stuff like that. But I, I know Montgomery and Ottavino and uh, Green, you know, they were pretty vocal about, you know, not liking it. And I got to agree with them, you know, about putting a guy on second base. I mean, that, that to me is ridiculous. Yeah, well, that's, that's a reliever's worst nightmare, right? Yeah, you're warming yeah. up and, you hey, yeah. you're, you're coming in the game and, oh, yeah, well, uh, there's a man on second that you didn't put there. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's your loss. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to lose this game if you give up one hit. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the tricky part. Relievers uh, definitely are not going to like it. You know, I, obviously in a year like this and a 60-game schedule, uh, the, the pandemic, everything that's going on, this was the year to try new things. You know, and I know that's what the ownership uh, really wanted to try to do, Rob Manfred. I know that Tony Clark on the players' side was certainly reluctant, uh, was probably more concerned with the, with the health protocols being, being in place and also the salary issues, compensation issues he was more concerned with, that he probably was more willing to bend on a rule like this, at least experimental. I'm not sure this one's going to last. You know, uh, we're going to try it this year and maybe for the protection of players and because the rosters are compromised and we're in the middle of a pandemic to avoid playing 15, 16, 17 inning games potentially might be okay to, to, to do away with for this one year because of these circumstances. And, yeah, you get to try a funky new rule that probably won't work. But, it, you know, in, in, the, in the interim, you know, it'll be different. Well, you know, it'll definitely – People will be talking about it. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, when, it, when it's been used in the minor leagues, no game has gone past 11 innings. So, the, you know, the era of the 15-inning games are over, at least for this year. I saw a stat, I think it was on yesterday the other night, where like 70 76% of the games that, with the runner on second base end in the 10th inning. Yes, it, it's going to be over quickly. You know, you're not going to see those long games. I imagine in a full healthy year, we probably get back to the real rules, but you know, for this year, I, you know, I can kind of see it. I can kind of understand where they're coming from. And of all the years to try this, this is the year to try something like that. Now, the DH, I, I think that's, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be here to stay forever, I think. Yeah, you would think. You know, and, you know I, I've seen both sides of that argument. I like the debate. I love the purist. You know, I was a National League pitcher early in my career. I loved hitting. Uh, but, you know, this is a job creator. There's 15 extra big league jobs now added you know somebody like a Luke Voigt or a Mike Ford or somebody who could really hit that's in AAA that might not ever get a chance to be a big leaguer is now going to get a chance to be a big leaguer so you know to me that that's you know I'm an old I'm an old players association guy when you add that many jobs that to me that that's that's music to my ears yeah Ken, Ken Singleton was talking about that the last time we had him on about you know it saved his, his career you know I mean for guys that can hit you know but really struggle to play in the field I mean it keeps them around for for a few more years yeah I mean there's so many examples Hal McRae yep. Paul Molitor yep. Hall of Fame type players you know yeah guys that you know can stay up there and just swing the bat I mean look at Pujols I mean he's 
he's a good example in, in today because I mean he can still hit. You know, I mean yes. he's one of the he's one of the best hitters I've seen. You know, when I was in the National League, and and that's the thing. You know, we talk about you know the purists. You know. I had played my, my whole career in the American League. Then when I went over to the National League, I saw that game played, and I said, man, I like the way this is played. But yes. I, think when, I think when interleague changed uh, and, you know, we didn't have the American League and the National League where there were, you know, different leagues. But now that they are playing interleague and stuff like that, I, I think it's about time to – I changed my mind on it. At first I didn't, but now, now I like it. I think we've actually seen that over the course of the last three podcast episodes, Bucky. Yeah, I think so because you know I, I wasn't I wasn't for that, but now I am. You know, I, I'm I'm slowly changing my tune. Yeah, I can I can tell you this that the the first major league at bat I had in the big leagues was the first at bat I'd had since high school. So wow. you know they they're they're not letting the the pitchers hit in the minor leagues. So you know you really it's a disadvantage. There's a few really good hitters. Bumgardner, Grinky, the really good hitters, but the vast majority of pitchers are awful, and they're not allowed to even try to train or apply their craft in the minor leagues. You're not allowed to hit, so you yeah. could go four or five years in the minor leagues, and all of a sudden you're starting in a big league game, and you've got a hit, and you haven't picked up a bat in you know in five or six years. The first bat, did you jelly leg it? Did you step yeah, in the bucket? Yeah, it was coming so hard. I couldn't <laughs> believe how fast the guy was throwing. There's a pitcher, pitcher named Jimmy Jones. He pitched for San Diego back in the oh, day. Oh, yeah. I had Jimmy Jones. Yeah, he had a, he had a pretty good fastball in early in his career. Good, you know, four-seam fastball. I, I had no chance. I mean, it was faster than anything I'd ever seen. First time I faced Nolan Ryan, I felt the same way in James Rodney Richards. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wanted to bail out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, but, uh, I mean, you know, this team this year, though, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm looking for good things for them. I, I'm hoping that they stay healthy. Uh, you know, I love DJ LeMayhew. He's an old school, you know, just, just a hard baseball player. I just love the way he plays. Yes, great. You know, and in, in the Yankees, you know, if they, if they are healthy, and get DJ LeMayhew back off the, you know, the restricted list and he's healthy and Judge is ready to go and Stanton's ready to go and Cole's leading the rotation and somehow you can get Chapman back eventually, you know, through the protocols. To me, it's the Dodgers and the Yankees have the two best teams on paper. I know we're short time today and uh, you, you got a lot of things going on, moving and stuff like that. Where can we get the paperback book? Uh, you know, the simplest place, and thanks, Bucky. Thanks for having me on. Great to be on with you. It's uh, davidconebook.com, davidconebook.com, and it's out in paperback. Jack Curry, uh, fantastic writer I collaborated with, uh, New York Times for 15 years, now works with the Yes Network, so he did a fantastic job with it. And It's a real honest and raw look at uh, what it's like to be a pitcher, back to Little League all the way up through the end. I'm going to get on Andrew. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust his chops, and, and – he, he, I forgot that he told me that you he he started the Coneheads in, in in with the Mets when you were with the Mets in the upper deck one night, didn't he? Yes, he did. He was he was behind it. He and him and a bunch of Lehigh of this Lehigh crew, where he went to college, uh, all came down and they started something that uh, really kind of followed me my whole career. So yeah, that that was all Andrew Leedy. Well, good luck this year, you know, and uh, I love listening to you. And uh, we're hoping the Yankees are going to bring home that pennant this year in, uh, in that World Series. But great to have you on. And, and uh, you know, like I said, good luck. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Bucky. Well, it was great to have David on. I mean, he has so much knowledge and he was a, just a tremendous pitcher. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, this is what, three episodes in a row now, I believe, where we've done guys affiliated with Yes Network. And it really is so interesting to me just getting to hear 
David's a voice that we're so so used to and everything like that, but you know the way he thinks about the game and, and, and you're used to the way he thinks about the game. But what he doesn't do a lot on the air is apply it back to himself in a sense. And, and I enjoyed hearing his own stories and, and that stuff because the guy's a good storyteller. He was such a gamer as a player. And, and to your point, John, he, <laughs> he did so much on the mound. He fought so hard for every, every inning, every pitch, every game that he won. And he articulated it so well. He just wore his emotions on his sleeve. I think that's why the more people you talk to who are around my age and, you know, were in high school in the 90s and college, in, you know, late 90s and really fell really in love with, with the game. It had a lot to do with guys like that who, you know, who you just, you just wanted to be around those guys. You know, they were, they were you know, so cool. And he was just such a, a warrior, but a guy that looked like he was always – invested in everything he did, had a lot of fun. And it's still, like he said, all these years later, it's really, really great to hear him talk about all those great memories. Well, you know, he brought the, he brought that intensity to the field, you know, and, uh, you know, he was in that, that time when the Yankees were really, really good, you know, and, and you could tell he brought the fun off the field, you know, he's professional, but when he was on that field, man, he brought that intensity and you knew, like you said, he was going to, he was going to go after you and give you everything he had. And, and I think that that, that showed the way for, for some of the other, other guys, like he, he was talking about Wells, you know, how he, him and him got into it and, and Wells wound up becoming a really, really good pitcher after that. So that tells you what kind of guy he is. Well, hey, guys, I think that was a, another really good one. Obviously, look, I mean, we, we've said it already. It, it's great every time we get to talk to any of these guys, but David Cohen is one that we had circled for a while, and he, he lived up to it. So, Bucky, Al, the next time we do this, it'll be in the what should be the middle, I guess, already of baseball season. <laughs> wow, uh, so really? I, I mean, <laughs> I'm looking amazing. for it. I'm looking it's not going to take too long to get to the middle of the season. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to yeah. fly by, isn't it? It's true. It's true. Wow. It, took, it, took, it took us 11 episodes to get there, but we're finally going to have a, a yeah. baseball season. <laughs> well, it's a, you know, it's a lot like the Kentucky Derby. You know, you, uh, you spend a long time getting down there and all the uh, preparations for it and the race is a couple seconds. You know, maybe it's a little bit longer than that, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun, Bucky, to talk to you, believe it or not, about real baseball games that are happening. And I say believe it or not because, um, you know, we thought we were going to be doing that months ago but it's it's gonna be really really exciting to do that with you uh soon well i can't i can't i can't wait you know i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing this team you know to see if if cole's gonna be that guy to to really get them over the hump and and kind of like direct them kind of like when catfish came when cone went to you know to new york and stuff like that it's going to be fun to see this team uh, and i and i like them i like them a lot well bucky al that's a uh... It's, good. it's something to look forward to, obviously, only a couple of days away. Thank you guys so much for uh, this episode. Thank you. Great to be with you guys again. And uh, for everyone else here, thank you for listening to another episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you also check out the other podcasts on the Yankees Magazine Podcast Network, which is the Yankees Magazine Podcast. Our most recent episode looked back at the making of the August issue of the magazine. Finally, 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 we're talking about publishing Yankees Magazine again. It's been too long without it, much as it's been too long without Yankees baseball. It's nice to have both of them back. Please, uh, wherever you get your podcasts or at yankees.com slash podcast, you can subscribe to either one of our podcasts or find old episodes. We obviously appreciate you know reviews and ratings and everything like that. So, so go ahead and do that. 
Also, make sure you go to yankees.com slash magazine where you can read all of our long-form content, which, as I said, we're about to start putting more up now that it's going to be baseball season. So that's something to look forward to. By all means, please write to us at podcast at yankees.com. And most importantly, as we've been saying for a little while now, if you are a subscriber to Yankees Magazine and you've been wondering where the magazine has been, it's finally coming back. But don't worry, whatever number of issues you had left in your subscription, we are going to fulfill all of them. So if you had six issues left before we stop uh, publishing, you will get six more. Of course, you can always call 800-GO-YANKS or go to yankees.com slash publications to start a new subscription, renew your subscription, give a gift subscription, or just to buy back issues. Either way, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine, and we will speak to you in two weeks during baseball season. Speak to you then. Have a good one. Hi, this is Aaron Hicks. For more stories like this one, subscribe by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS.